Well, good day, everyone. It's Wesley here from Business Blessings, and I want to welcome you to this special, um, what we're calling a masterclass, not a webinar, because it's going to be a lot of great uh, information with Dr. Roger Parrott, who is the president of Bellhaven University in the US. So Roger, it's so great to have you. I've I've enjoyed listening to your podcast and uh, reading your book and, and just connecting with you in person as well. So thank you for your time. Well, Wes, this is a huge treat for me. And, and I just love your approach because as we talked in preparation for this, you want you want to get practical. And I love that because I think so much in leadership, we get theoretical, we get into ideas that are that almost can't be implemented because we try to to uh, get out of the reality of where we live. And so today, as we have a chance to talk, I want to talk about things that are right on the front line of, of where we all live as leaders and and some of the issues we face and, and the practice of how we deal with this stuff in a godly way that honors the Lord. It sounds fantastic. Roddy, can you just give a bit of your history and background? Because this is not something new. This is something you've developed over many, many years. So tell us a bit of your story to start with. Yeah, you know, I mean, I don't know if it's all that exciting of a story, but <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a little bit unusual. I'm a third generation university president. So my father, and my grandfather were both university presidents. In fact, I work at the desk my grandfather used back in the 1930s and 40s and uh, kind of grew up in higher education and loved it. My wife uh, teaches English at, at Bellhaven. Her specialty is ancient literature. Greek literature and Shakespeare, and my kids both went to Bellhaven and went on to do their master's degree. So we're kind of an education-focused family, but my, my interest has been broader than that in how education is used for discipleship and building the church. And so I've been very involved with the Lausanne Committee for World Evangelization, now called the Lausanne Movement, um, in, in focusing on evangelism and discipleship. And, and to me, I think the Christian higher education is one of the greatest tools of discipleship that we have available to us in the church. So my calling, yes, it's to uh, to help train uh, artists and STEM people and, and doctors and educators, but it's really about how do we build disciples? And so I've been a university president. I was, I was elected way too young. I was only 34 when I was elected. So I've been in this a long time. I think this is my 38th year or something as a university president. Uh, I love it every day. It's the best job in the world. Uh, you know, get to you work with these bright young people who are idealist, idealistic about the world. You get work with faculty who, who are experts in the field, and you get to own your own your own soccer team or football team. So it, it's pretty good. And uh, and so I I, uh, I do love it. And uh, but again, uh, God's just privileged me with the opportunity to serve in some places of leadership that uh, I never imagined God would open those doors. That's fantastic. Yeah, Roger, I'm not going to do a lot of Q&A through this. We're going to let you get going. But I just want to say right from the start, the pre like, I love that you're an educationalist because I lecture at a university myself. Uh, and we've got some educationalists on today, mm -hmm. which is great. Um, but these principles are not just for an education institution are they they're for church they're for business they're for anyone who's seeking to run whatever organization they're involved in uh, by listening to to what god has to say 
Yeah, they really are. And as we'll talk, these, this, uh, the principles I'm talking about really come back to some pretty basic biblical principles for leadership. But when I wrote the book, uh, Opportunity Leadership, Stop Planning and Start Getting Results, I was a little surprised by the response because I got response from educators and, and ministry leaders, but pastors, and then a number of business people contacted. In fact, Jim Morgan, who endorsed the book, was the guy who turned around Krispy Kreme donuts. I don't know if you have Krispy Kreme in, in Australia yes, or not. It's, it's, a, it's just one of my favorite donut stores. Okay, well, it's a big there. deal. <laughs> you know, that company was about out of business, and Jim turned it around, and he read the book, and he said, this is exactly what we did. This is what we did to run our business. So yeah, these principles hold... Um, they, they're grounded in a biblical theology of trust, so I don't think they work if you're not a follower of Christ at all, because it really is built in such a commitment to trusting God for the future. But whether that's in a full-time ministry setting, a church, uh, I mean, a, a school setting, or a business, I, I'm finding they really do hold up. Yeah, this is fantastic. Well, I'm going to let you run for it. Just say to those that are on, if you want to put, it sounds like the chat's not working, but if you go into Q&A, and if you've got any questions uh, as we go, put them into Q&A, and then at the end, uh, we'll do a specific Q&A time doing that. So, Roger, over to you. I'm looking forward to what you well, have to say. Well, that's great, and I appreciate the the open door to just kind of, kind of uh, talk about some of these big ideas, and I pray they might be helpful. Uh, to uh, those of you who are who are here with us live and those who'll be watching uh, later. But, uh, you know, I, I would start by saying I never planned to write this book. Um, this was not something I set out to do. Uh, in fact, it was the least thing I'd planned to do, but God brought an opportunity into my life uh, that was completely unexpected. I was le leading chapel, and I, and I speak in chapel every week, but we had a guest speaker, and, and I didn't know who the guest speaker was. Our provost had invited her because we were doing a focus on mental health uh, for college students, and she was an expert in that. Come to find out, she was a book editor for Moody Publishing. And so like a good book editor, she said, well, you know, would you like to write a book? And I said, no, no, I've done that. I don't, I don't want to do that. I've done it before and I'm done. And, 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 and pretty savvy, she said, well, if you did write a book, what would you write about? And I just took off on this whole idea that we are addicted to long-range planning and it's killing the church, it's killing leadership, it's taking the joy from us, we're missing the best of what God has for us, and there's a better way to lead, and that is to discard long-range planning and look for opportunities. And so that's how the book came about. And Wes has been so great to encourage uh, the book and, uh, and, and so great to read it. But, you know, I had somebody who read it shortly after it came out. He called me as a university president. He said, I stayed up all night last night reading your book, and I finally don't feel guilty for what I've actually been doing. So what I'm finding as this book has come out is that it's not for a lot of people, they are trying to do this, but they've never either had the permission or the words or the structure for how to lead without dependency on a long-range planning. So, so I'd say at the outset, it's important for you to understand that, that I was a long-range planner. I've been there. I have done that uh, for many years as a university leader before that. I planned the 
I planned the, the future. I appointed the Blue Ribbon Committee, and it's always got to be a Blue Ribbon Committee. I don't know why it can't be any color, any other color, but it's always a Blue Ribbon Committee. You appoint it, you send them off to work to develop this plan for the future, and they go through this process, and then they come out with a document, and then everything's supposed to be solved. And what I find is that it doesn't solve things. In fact, it makes it worse. And I want to talk to you a little bit about why that is so. And so I began kind of a, a process 20 years ago to begin to let go of this idea of being addicted to long-range planning and instead trust God for opportunities for him, where he would lead us for the future. And, uh, you know, the first time I publicly introduced this idea was I did the keynote for the 2004 for forum for world evangelization in Pattaya, Thailand. And uh, I had the privilege of chairing that conference and did the keynote and introduced this idea. And it's been developing through the years. And then the, I, the opportunity for this book came along. And so I've kind of written this as a guide for others who would like to go this direction and to, and to follow a pattern that really brings a freedom of leadership that most of us don't think is possible. So um, I kind of want to start there. And that is that, uh, excuse me, that, that we gave up long range planning in 2002, essentially because first of all, it doesn't work. And all of you who had a long range plan uh, four years ago, you don't have one now. Nobody had COVID in your plan. Your plan was all busted. And uh, we adjusted and we, we made changes in light of that. But probably more importantly, we are settling for less than God's best by being addicted to our long-range planning structure and that long-range planning goal setting rather than capturing the opportunities around us. And um, I have just found that as we let go of this, it has revolutionized everything we've done at our university. Um, you know, I, I want to differentiate the beginning here. I'm talking about long-range planning. Some people call it strategic planning. Um, I call it destination planning. I don't want to predict the destinations where God will take us, but I do want to make the best plan for what he's already given us. So at our university, we know the things we're going to do, and we plan very carefully, how do we get the most out of what God has already given us? What we don't plan is where God might take us in the future. And often I'll get that question. Well, you know, in fact, the television crew will come and, and take a, you know, do an interview and they'll say, well, where do you expect the university to be 10 years from now or five years from now? And my very transparent answer is, I don't know. But here's what I do know. I know that the best plan we could come up with around conference tables is pale in comparison to the plan that God has for us. So we're going to be attentive to God's direction, God's win. We're going to capture those opportunities when they come and go where God wants us to go rather than trying to predict where those directions are and then force those things to happen. So it is a very different style of uh, or approach to leadership. Uh, you know, as I was writing the book, 
and I'll get into the definition here in a minute, but as I was writing the book, you know, it, 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 it kind of evolved into a, a new model of leadership, but I really don't call it new because it's not new. It is a biblical model of leadership. It's, it's grounded in the principles of trust and God's sovereignty and, and dependence on him for the future. And like Abraham, we're willing to go, but we don't know where we're going. And that willingness in that, we find this joy of leadership that we've never found before and a freedom for it. So um, I, I will tell you this, in all of my years of leadership, this is the single best decision I ever made was to let go of long range planning. The single best decision. It has freed me up. It has given me a joy. It's given me a trust in God I never had before. It's it's done amazing things to my prayer life. It's energized our team. It's uh, energized our donors uh, and our board of trustees. It really has changed our culture completely because we are so dependent on God for what that future is rather than us trying to force those destinations to happen. So, you know, when you hear about this for the first time, you think, well, that's crazy. That's, that's way too radical. And I can't do that. And I want to encourage you at the beginning, don't go jump off the deep end and go do this immediately. You get fired if you do. Do not do that. In fact, I wrote a, a little scenario in the book about a, uh, a business leader who does that and jumps in and how quickly gets fired. You can read that if you're interested. I think it's chapter four. But, um, um, you know, you don't want to jump in right away. There is a process to it. And, and we're going to have two sessions together. So I think in the next session, uh, in about a month from now, we'll talk about that process of how you move into this. But I think you've, the only way to understand what this really can do for you is to, is to examine it and to see a hard example. So I want to give you an example of how this actually does work in process, not the process of not planning, but how the results came about. And so we were about a dozen years into this idea of not doing a long range plan. And uh, my board had bought in, uh, the faculty and staff had bought in, our donors had bought in. It's interesting, in the early days when I was telling people about it, and I'd say, you know, we, we believe in God's sovereignty. We want to trust God for the future. We want to put everything into the hands of God and go only where God would take us. And so we're not going to have a plan. We're going to capture opportunities when they come instead of, of trying to predict destinations. And everybody would say, that's great. That's wonderful. That's so true. That's exactly how we want to live. And then they pull me aside and they say, yeah, but if that doesn't work, what's the real plan? Well, the real plan is there is no plan. That is the real plan. And so it took a while to move into a culture where, where my constituency was comfortable with this idea of not having a plan. In fact, if you come to uh, bellhaven.edu uh, with one L, B-E-L-H-A-V-E-N, you look for long-range plan, it doesn't exist. And every other university in America has a long-range plan. We do not. So we were in this about a dozen years, and, and I thought it's a good time to kind of remind all of us that God is leading in all this. And so I took to my board a document. It was, I think it was 72 points of, and I labeled it five-year plan. And I chose very carefully some of my words so it would sound like the future, 
but it really was the past and began to walk through this document. And some of the highlights were that we, I, I've got them on the screen uh, for you here, that we were going to increase our enrollment 43%. We're going to raise $21 million in new gifts, which for us is a lot of money. Uh, $31 million in new construction projects, seven new undergraduate programs, of which one was nursing, and that's a big one, and eight new graduate programs. And so laid out this whole document of this is what we're going, this is the five-year plan. And then here's the kicker. I said, that is not the plan for the next five years. This is what we actually did the previous five years. <clears throat> now, here's the bottom line of all that. If five years before I would have brought to the board this plan, we would have cut everything back by at least half if not two thirds. We would have said, how about 20% enrollment growth? That would be huge. And, and let's raise $12 million in gifts and let's let's build $10 million in construction and, and three new undergraduate programs and maybe three grad. That's enough, That that's a huge. And you know, we would have felt pretty good about that plan and we would have celebrated it and we'd say, God's led us to this plan and we would have prayed over it and we'd say, this is where God wants us to go. And we probably would have hit it. But look at what we would have missed if we had stayed in the best plan we could come up with. And so that is the hard proof of how this works. Now, this spring, <clears throat> when the book came out, a year ago spring, I thought, well, you know, I need to test that again. So I took the same exercise to my board of trustees. And there was not one thing on the list that even was on our radar in the previous five years. It was remarkable how dramatically God had led. So I just want to encourage you, this works because it's godly dependent. It's built in a, in a theology of trust. And as a leader, when you can get free from this grip where you've got to project a destination and then you've got to make that happen and then you're held accountable for whether or not that happens at that level and you live under this enormous pressure that doesn't need to be there if you can change your culture into a godly culture that really trusts God for opportunities. A lot of the things that come to us are way beyond your control. You know, Wes was telling me about some of the of the political and, and regulatory things that have come to Christian schools in, in Australia. You can't plan around that. You can respond to those opportunities. How do we best work within that? But you can't make a plan that says we're going to do X, Y, Z, and this comes on top, and then you, you can't make that objective. But we live under this pressure because we've assumed that planning has to happen in this traditional way because that's how business does it. And if business does it, it's got to be right. The other problem is we have gotten pretty good at building some impressive plans that impresses those on the business side. And we want to hold that up as best practices. There's a whole better way to do it. So I, I would invite you to kind of ask yourself this question and, and reflect a little bit on it. During the past five years, what significant advance in your ministry, in your school, in your business did you not plan? What did you not plan? Figure that out and then ask this accompanying question. Did your long-range planning structure make it easier or more difficult to capture the opportunity? 
And too often I find that God is bringing us opportunities, but we have a planning structure that makes it very difficult. We say, well, we can't do that because we've got this plan and we've got to make that happen and we're accountable for that. And we're going to be held at the next board meeting for the benchmarks against that. And in doing so, we miss God's opportunities. And as we'll talk either today or, or the, a month from now, God's opportunities usually come very gently. They don't come and knock you over. So they're not going to knock your plan out of the way. They're just going to come gently, and you're probably not even going to notice them unless you're looking for opportunities. <clears throat> and so that's, that's really part of the model that we've developed at my institution as we've implemented this idea of trusting God for the future. And so we built it around uh, an analogy that fits for us. Now, if you come to my campus and ask people about opportunity leadership, some might know, some might have read the book, but most won't. And, but if you ask them about powerboats and sailboats, they'll all know. And the image we want to give is as an institution, we want to be a sailboat that's prepared to catch the wind of God and go wherever God's wind takes us than a powerboat where it goes where we think God wants us to go and ignores the wind. And there's a whole litany of stuff. I detailed some of it in the book. Maybe we can talk about some of it at some point of the this difference between powerboats and sailboats in leadership and how they completely change our approach. They complain, change how we operate. They change how we interact with each other, where they change our outlook our dependency on each other. But to us, it all comes down to this single core question. Would we rather try to achieve a set of ambitious goals by revving up the engines of our ministry powerboats to create the best program structures, benchmarks, and future our well-informed collective thinking can imagine? Or would we rather find our destination in sailboats prepared and equipped to catch the wind of God and only wherever God's wind might take us. As you read that, the second one's the answer. You know it is. You and I know it is. Well, why are we living with the first as our structure that guides us? And I remind my campus all the time that no matter how impressive somebody's powerboat is, a tired, worn out, beat up sailboat will outdistance a powerboat every single time because only a sailboat can catch the wind of God. And so while some of those powerboats of ministry around us look really impressive and we want to emulate them and we want to follow what they're doing, that is not what is going to take us to God's very best in his destinations. So let me just, uh, you know, and, and Wes asked me to talk about the book here at the beginning, maybe the first half and the second half, talk about maybe some more practice of leadership uh, related to what you're dealing with every day. But in, in trying kind to of put the, the, the concept of the book in, process, in, in context, let me give you a definition of opportunity leadership. Now, you know, I'm an academic, Wes teaches at a, at a university, so he, he thinks this way too. We, we, we have to have an, a, a, a definition for when we're talking about a, a whole uh, school of leadership. And so here, here's the definition that, that I have developed and, and used. Opportunity leadership is grounded in waiting and anticipation for God-given opportunities 
to develop that mesh seamlessly with our mission, gifting, and capacity, propelling us to destinations that are heavenly ordained. So that's the first part. Let me just break that down for just a minute. First of all, we're waiting. We are waiting for God's opportunities. In long-range planning, we are forcing things to happen. So this begins with an entirely different focus. We are waiting for opportunities, and we're but we're waiting in anticipation. We expect God to bring opportunities. And you know, one of the biggest challenges of, of ministry leaders is they really don't think God will bring opportunities. They really don't think so. They don't operate that way. They don't act that way. They think they've got to create them. Somehow God's thrown us the keys of the car and our job is to take it and run it and take it to where He, we think he wants it to go. That's not true at all. We have got to be in anticipation that God really will bring opportunities. And then when he brings opportunities, and I get this question a lot, when he brings opportunities, how do you know which ones fit for you and which ones don't? And so I talk a lot in the book about this whole idea of mission, gifting, and capacity. Those are the drivers that help us to determine where our priorities should be, what the opportunities are that we should capture, which ones we should let go, and, and where to put our focus. And so mission. And I have some in the book some really hard questions about mission because we have this is not about mission statements. This isn't about a retreat. Come up with a mission statement. This is about what gets lived out every single day in how we work and how we operate in the decisions we make and the in the process we have. So <clears throat> mission, does it fit our mission? And uh, <clears throat> I've got a, a chapter in the book called Staying in Your Lane. And essentially the idea is that often things will come along and they look a lot like what you do. That mission may look a lot like your mission, but it's a different lane. And don't stray into somebody else's lane just because it's tempting. So mission gifting, what are you good at? What are you good at? You should know as a ministry leader what you're good at. What do you what do you really do well? And uh, I've got a team of, of terrific people, and I know what they're good at. I know as a group what we're good at, and I know what we're not good at. And so we try to stay within that fit of what we're good at. Mission, gifting, and capacity. What, what do you have capacity for? You know, sometimes you've got flex and you've got room to bring on something, and other times you just press to the limit. And uh, maybe you're pressed to the limit with things that really don't matter. And you need to look at that as well. But so we want to be focused on mission, gifting, and capacity to understand what opportunities fit. And then the second part of this definition is this, that as a result of this waiting and anticipation, mission, gifting, capacity, as a result, we become leaders who hone traits that enable us to become highly sensitive to the wind of God and create an organizational culture that allows us to respond to new opportunities with expediency, adeptness, and energy. And so we are, are developing the traits personally as leaders, and we're developing the culture organizationally in order to respond to these opportunities.
And so that's kind of the the outline of the big concept. Now I want I want to watch our time because <laughs> I get going on this and I and I go too far. So I'm probably going to skip a slide or two here um, to talk about um, uh, why are we so addicted to this planning model. And and we can either do that in Q and A or we can uh, do it the next time around if you're interested in that. And then and then what are the factors that really hold us into that and how do we how do we change that culture? So I want to skip over that. Uh, right now, so, so we kind of stay on our time frame. But we've got a lot of, but but I want to look at this issue with you, and that's ask you to make a contrast in this whole idea of planning versus uh, 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 letting go of planning. There's this contrast with the promises versus the outcomes. And it's some of the deficiencies of planning that we just skipped over. So I may have to come back to that eventually here, but but there's this contrast that we we create this expectation in the planning process that no reality can live up to. And in that, there are hidden deficiencies in the strategic planning process that makes the final outcome far worse than if we'd even started to plan to begin with. And so there's so much that's built around this whole idea of planning that if we can just build a plan, if we can just get the committee to go work, if they can just come out with the with the goals and objectives and do the SWOT analysis and all the stuff that goes with it, then things are going to work well. I, I would caution you, they will not. In fact, I would make the case they will make it worse because there's such a contrast between what we promise and what the outcomes are. And so often I see leaders go through this process of creating a plan, announcing the plan, making a big event out of it. It doesn't implement the way they expect it to be. They quietly let it die, wait a few years and go do it again, or the leader moves on. Somebody new comes in and they make the plan and they go through this cycle over and over and over again. It is, a, it is a cycle that is not built in our trust in God in the way we could if we let go of this idea of planning. So um, I know Wes is going to encourage you about the book, but in the book, I'll tell you there are um, there's uh, six talents of opportunity leaders, and we'll talk about those uh, next time. Uh, leading without a plan is the plan. We'll talk a little bit more about staying in your lane, which is about mission. How do you determine mission? Uh, making decisions that don't solve the problem. So often we make decisions, but they're not solving the real problem. How do you get out front without getting so far out front you get you get uh, hurt in the process? How do you practice future-focused evaluation? These are characteristics that I want to encourage um, leaders to take on. And the one that's a little more American, sorry about this, but emulating baseball managers instead of of football coaches. And I'm not sure how well that relates to Australia, but it, it's a principle that's been pretty strong here in the U.S. So we're going to look at that. And then we're, and then we're going to look at, at then the tendencies of opportunity leadership ministries. And these are, are really cultural issues. How do you change your culture? so that you're embracing speed. Christian ministries are so slow, way too slow. How do we embrace speed? How do we get 
faster. We're missing too many opportunities because we are so slow. And we'll talk a little bit about the DNA of why we're so slow. <laughs> talk about how to get comfortable with risk. This is a culture change uh, to get comfortable with a certain level of risk and then flexing for implementation that uh, what you start with is not what you're going to end with and knowing that going in. And that's really hard for people who are used to to long range traditional planning. The, chapter four is a, 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 a characteristics of these is one close to my heart, and that's learning to love roadblocks. Most leaders hate roadblocks. They're trying to figure out how to get rid of them. I'm saying learn to love roadblocks. God will use roadblocks to help you more than you could ever imagine. And then realigning our focus. How do we get a new focus in this culture? And then being like Jesus, how to really lead like Jesus that is built in grace and truth so that's kind of the outline of the book and um and where it's headed <laughs> and we'll get into that next week but but wes asked me to talk in in a little bit more uh specific ways about some of the of the immediate challenges that leaders are facing that and i and i pray these might be helpful to you and i, I put them together in context of of a of, of, of a bigger issue we all face as leaders and that's how to lead for change and live to tell the story. And uh, we all as leaders are people who are leading for change. If you're not leading for change, you're probably in big trouble. So we've all got to bring about change to the churches, the, the schools, the uh, businesses, whatever organization we work with. And that can be from the CEO chair, can be from a different chair within structure, it can be from a board chair. How are we going to lead for change and live to tell the story? Because a lot of leaders get beat up in this whole process of bringing about change within your organization and ministry. And if you're going to make as dramatic a change as I'm encouraging with opportunity leadership to get rid of long-range planning, you talk about, about risky. If you're going to make that kind of change, you've got to understand this process of how you lead for change so that you can thrive as a leader in that process of change. So let me start um, with just talking a little bit about the issue of change. I think we have to understand the three reasons change is so unsettling. And change really is. It, is. it is so unsettling for people. But if you don't understand what's going on in the dynamics of their life, you're just going to be dealing with symptoms. You're not going to be dealing with the real problem. And so I think it's really important to understand. The first is that change creates tension. It just creates tension. And I'm talking about change is good or bad. Good or bad changes uh, ten, uh, change creates tension, either one. And so whenever we're talking about change, we're talking about an issue of an elevated culture of tension we have to address straight up. You can't ignore it. You can't act like it doesn't exist. No, it exists. And it exists really for four reasons. First one is there's a loss of control. When you're going to talk about change, again, this could be good change or bad change. When you talk about change, people feel like they're losing control. And so we're going to shift. We're going to do things differently. 
There's going to be a, a new focus, a new priority, a new whatever that comes in. So I'm losing control of my little world. And that's scary. And the people we work with and leaders like to keep control. There's, there's a whole lot of issues. And, and I wrote some about that of leaders wanting to keep such level of control. That's even more dangerous because you what you say is elevated. So we've got to deal with this issue of <coughs> loss of control. And one way to deal with it is just admit it. Tell people, I know this feels like you're, you're losing control because we're going to consider this change. That's okay. We're going to walk through this together and we're going to deal with that and cope with it. If you can just acknowledge that you understand that, it's not we're all going to tough up and we're just going to go into battle and we're not afraid. No, we are afraid. Because we're losing control of the little things that we can control. Uh, second is that change creates more work. And, uh, and just the idea of change, again, for good or for bad, the initial reaction for a lot of people is, I'm going to have to do so much more. I'm going to have to take on that new process. I'm going to have to do that. Now, the outcomes may be of great virtue and, and wonderful. But if they feel like they're overwhelmed by that additional work, it can really be consuming to them. And then change can can trigger a bunch of past resentments. You know, we we kind of in, in the workplace, even in Christian workplace, there are times of tension, and some of those get damped down for a while, and we kind of just let them go. But when change comes about, some of those things come out. And as a leader, when you bring about change, you're going to run into people who have tensions about things that you thought kind of settled. Well, they really weren't. They were just damped down for a while. And then there's this whole idea on change of when's the other shoe going to fit fall? Well, you know, you said we're going to make this change, but then what else is going to happen? And they're waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting. And one of the things I do with my team often is I say, look, we're going to, we're looking at this change. This is what we're going to make. And once we get that on this issue, then we're settled. Or once we get that, we're going to have to go to the next level and do this and this and this, and there are probably going to be several more changes. And so you've got to kind of give people a roadmap for where they're headed, or otherwise they're just living this fear of, well, you, I can absorb that blow, but when are you going to give me more? <laughs> and so they they grip down, and this tension creates, creates um, uh, a, a kind of a freezing in what they do. The second issue around change is that the hope is short-lived in change. And, uh, you know, we can so idealize what the future is. And we say, this is going to be great. We're going to make this change. It's going to be wonderful. And it's going to do X, Y, Z and all this kind of good stuff. But reality doesn't live up to that. And, you know, I, I built a lot of buildings on my campus. And one of the things I don't do is do artist renderings because there's no real building that can look as good as that architect can draw it on a piece of paper. And so what I found is the buildings are disappointing if people see the rendering. The same is true with employees. You know, I mean, one thing to remind your folks is the only perfect employee is the one you haven't hired yet. That's the only perfect one. And the challenge is that when a new employee comes, all they can do is disappoint us because, you know, we, we say, well, we've got this problem. We're going to hire, uh, you know, Johnny Sue for this. And once she gets here, she's going to fix it all. And once she gets here, this all problem is going to go away. And once she gets here, it's all going to be great. Well, nobody can live up to that standard. And so we idealize what 
the employees who what the employees can do that we don't know yet and all they can do is disappoint us so help people to be realistic about it or otherwise in change this short-lived hope makes the problem even worse and then there's this whole issue of returning to normal and we've all faced this during covid this whole thing of waiting for it to get back to normal and everything seems different and, and there's a lingering exhaustion because of change. And so if I can just hold on, if I can just grip my through, way through this, then finally, as an employee, it's all going to be better. <clears throat> no, it's not. You know, I think one of the most important things you can help your culture understand is that it's never going back to normal. There's always a new normal. There's always a new level of change. If we're not changing, we're not capturing God's best. So why wouldn't we want to change? Why would we want to go back to normal when that's not going to be God's best for us? Helping people get through these fears, the aggressiveness, the judgmentalism that comes with it. But you know, when it comes to change, I am convinced that most people would rather live in mediocrity than to grapple with change that pushes them into uncertainty. Most people, I'll say it again, would rather live with mediocrity than grapple with the change that pushes them into uncertainty. And so I think as leaders, we've got to have some hard handles to help people with change. I just want to hit on a few of them in these, and we've got um, we've got about 18 minutes left before we're going to do go to Q&A and I've got I've got, got eight eight axioms I want to share with you so we probably don't have time to get into too much detail on on many of them but but when you're going to lead for change I believe there are eight kind of principles that can hold us up no matter what the change is for good or for bad and again we're all leading through change all the time so we've got to develop these ideas and and to make them both front of mind and front of our skill set as a leader in order to help people through this whole <clears throat> concept of change. The first one is this, perspective is personal. Perspective is personal. People, even Christian people, will always act in their own self-interest. They will always act in their own self-interest. Don't believe me? Go announce to your crowd tomorrow, whether it's a church, a school, business, that you're moving to a new location. What's their initial response? Not, isn't that great? We're going to have a whole new facility. It's going to be bigger. It's going to be brighter. It's going to be greater. Their first response is, how does that impact me? Do I have to drive further? How am I going to get the same parking place? Where's my office going to be? If it's a church, where am I going to sit compared to where I used to sit? People look at these kinds of big issues of change from a personal perspective first. So as a leader, we have to help them think through it personally before we can help them to see the big idea of change. And as leaders so often, we've already embraced it. So we go in and we say, this is going to be incredible for us. We're going to do X, Y, and Z. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to do this for the kingdom. It's going to do this for the people we work with. <coughs> All these great things. But if we don't address the personal first, they're not even going to hear that other stuff. We have to help them understand from a personal perspective 
What's that impact of change? And there are various ways to do that, depending on your setting, but you've got to start there. If we don't start there, the big idea is really not ever going to get into their heart. Now, once they embrace it personally, yeah, then they can get behind the idea. Then they can get the vision. Then they can get God's opportunities of what he's doing. But until they can deal with it personally, they're not going to get to that level. Second idea that I'd suggest to you is that the critics are waiting for you. The critics are waiting for you. It is impossible, impossible to avoid, to outrun, or to beat down the critics. It can't be done. My approach is critics should be embraced rather than marginalized. And so often in leadership, we think if we can just marginalize this critic or that critic, then things will get smoother. You know what my philosophy is? If you get rid of one critic, God's going to send you another one. Because critics in some ways are good for us. And in leaders, leadership, we're always going to have critics. <clears throat> so a couple of things that I do that I found very helpful through the years. The first one is when I've got a, a change coming or a decision coming, <clears throat> I seek out the critics before the decision's made. So I can, you know, I've been here long enough. I've been here at this institution 27 years as president. And so I, I know where all the critics are about whatever issue might come up. I know what, who's going to not like this or who's not going to like that or who's going to have concerns about this or that. And so I want to go to them before that decision is made because I'm going to have to deal with a critic either before the decision is made or after the decision is made. Either one, I'm going to have to deal with the same critic. And what I find is their teeth aren't as sharp before the decision as they are after the decision. So that's one principle. The second principle I've learned about critics, which is really important, is that there's always something helpful to learn from every critic. I don't care how off base they are. I don't care how bad their information is. I don't care how skewed their perspective is. There's always something I can learn from a critic, even if it's that we didn't communicate very well. We didn't make this clear that they got such bad information. So something out of every criticism. And as leaders, our tendency, once we hear from critics, is to push back and to try to hold them off and to defend ourselves. And instead, if we will embrace critics, if we'll listen to them, if we'll learn from them, doesn't mean we're going to satisfy them. Doesn't mean that at all. Doesn't mean you have to give in to them. But when people are heard, then you have a chance to work with them. So you can say, after you go through all that process and discussion, you know, I just, we don't agree. And that's okay. But we both love Jesus and we both want the best for this institution. And we're going to work together, even though we don't agree on this. And most critics, <coughs> excuse me, will respect that. Thirdly, I'd suggest to you that good ideas stand up to the light of days. Good ideas always stand up to the light of day. An unexamined idea is always a bad idea. Anytime you don't examine ideas. And leaders, we have a horrible tendency to fall into this trap. We get an idea. You know, let's say, you know, on a weekend, I get a lot of ideas. Well, some weekend I get an idea about this. I get all excited about it. I get energized about it. I go in Monday. I call my team together. And I said, we're going to do this. And off we go. 
And if off we go happens and they don't examine it, they don't look at it, they don't kick the tires, they don't question it, it's probably going to be a bad outcome. Because until an idea is well examined, it's not a good idea and it hasn't really grown to the level of sophistication that it needs. And, and, and there's a lot I could talk about here. We, we don't have time, but, but, but I do talk about and, and written some about this total eclipses the sun that blocks out the light on ideas. And it can come from a controlling leader. And if you're controlling, you're blocking out good ideas and insights on good ideas. And so you're cleaning up the mess later. Secondly, it can come from timid employees who are, are, are just want to say yes, and they're afraid to bring up any, any uh, question about anything. And thirdly, it can come from a girl influence. So let me talk about that one just for a minute, because I think the Christian world especially has challenges with guerrilla influencers. <clears throat> and guerrilla influencers usually come in, on a board more than as an employee. But they're that person on the board who, once they speak, you can't disagree with them. Once they speak, the question's settled. Once they speak, nobody else is willing to give their opinion. And you have to deal as a leader or as a board chair with guerrilla influencers, or you're going to lock out, block out the light of day on ideas. And, and dealing with those kinds of people is not easy. But if you don't, your ministry will never grow. It will never develop. It'll always be stunted because guerrilla influencers can so keep you from looking at ideas and giving them the level of evaluation and, and change and, and adjustment they need to really become good ideas. Well, there's a lot of stuff I can talk about about, about how you move through that uh, process of the light of day, but let me, let me skip on and stay on time. <clears throat> the uh, <laughs> the next concept I would share with you that there's an axiom of, of changing in leadership is that policies are not solutions. Policies just really are not solutions. Policies instead are, are an offloading of responsibility. So as a leader, rather than trying to deal with a, uh, a personnel problem, and that's where policies usually come in, <clears throat> rather than dealing with a person who has a difficulty, we create a policy. And we create that policy for everybody who didn't have that problem. Instead of, because we're fearful of the confrontation of the, as I call it, an unpleasant quarter hour with somebody to work out an issue and to have that hard talk that has to happen to correct that, we create a policy that makes it difficult for everybody. So, you know, you can have a policy, uh, no shopping online at work. Because you've got one employee who's in there, you know, on eBay um, half the day. <clears throat> well, instead of dealing with that one employee, you make a policy for everybody. And then you put everybody at disadvantage. Because what about the people who need to buy something? Or or you the CEO and, and, and all of a sudden you heard about this book, Opportunity Leadership, where you want to go on and get it. Well, you can't because now you're breaking the policy, et cetera. You see where this thing tumbles apart in a hurry. Because you won't talk to the one person who's got a challenge and a problem. And so when we create policies, rather than deal with personnel issues and difficulties, we, we, um, we create a structure that hurts the good people and it doesn't create correct the bad people. The people who the policy is designed for are probably gonna ignore it anyway. 
They usually do. But we put these policies one on top of another, on top of another, and we absolutely overwhelm our people with policy. So when I'm looking at policy, you know, it's usually a reaction to a problem. We never just out of the blue create a policy. I don't think any of us have. Something happens, something went wrong. So we create a policy to correct that problem. I had one today with my team and something came up and, and two or three people said, well, we need a policy for that. But I said, yeah, that, that was a one-time deal. I was not creating another policy. I was just go deal with that problem, fix it and address it straight up. So we create these in reaction to a problem and then the design to control the fringe, which it doesn't. And then it just drains energy from everybody because pretty soon you're going to have a policy handbook. And that policy handbook is then going to have to have training sessions that teach people all the policies. And this thing just feels like this, this massive weight <laughs> that doesn't have to be there. So when I'm looking at a policy, I'm always asking four questions. I'll give them to you really quickly. First, does it serve the good employees? Not the bad employees. Does it serve the good employees? If it doesn't serve the good employees, you don't need the policy. You just need to deal with personnel. Secondly, are those closest to the problem creating the solution? Help them create the policy, not people two or three steps away. Have you imagined the problem the policy is going to create? You know, every policy is a re reaction to a problem, right? Well, there was a problem before. So you create a new policy. It's just going to create another problem at some point in the, in the structure. What problems is the new policy going to create? If you haven't anticipated that, don't put a policy in place. And then will you personally live by the policy? And, and this one, I push leaders on this one pretty hard, especially CEOs, because we don't like to live by the policy. We want everybody else to live by it. But if we're not willing to do it, why would we require it of everybody else? Fifth idea I give you is that conflicts of interest are tempting. They are so tempting. And in Christian organizations, we have so many opportunities to be drawn into conflicts of interest, <clears throat> where we have people who are good-hearted, they mean well, they want to help the ministry, but by using them for some arrangement, it can become a conflict of interest. So you need to build a building. You got somebody on your board who's a builder. You don't bid it. You go to that person. And that's all great until the thing turns sour. And then what happens? Or you've got somebody who really loves the ministry and they're a lawyer and they say they'll do part of the work for free. And you do that until it becomes a conflict of interest. There's a whole bunch of stuff about these conflicts of interest. And we get into them as leaders in Christian organizations because we we have, first of all, we're, we're optimistic by nature. By nature, we think everything's going to come out great. So we're optimistic there'll never really be a problem. We see the short-term benefits. Well, they want to help. So why wouldn't we want to encourage that? Um, these relationships often are very complex, and we don't want to unravel all that. We're kind of borrowing trouble. Yeah, we know that could be a conflict, but but it's going to solve the problem right now. So let's go ahead and then not doing them or doing the preparation to make them work is hard work, and we don't want to do that. So we get into these conflicts of interest that eventually come back to bite us, and I bet you if we had time, uh, many of you could tell stories about conflicts of interest that have just become horrendous. And so how do you deal with them? Just let me give you three quick ideas. The first one is transparency. 
if it would be awkward to explain and you can't explain it, then then you can't deal with it as a conflict. It's going to be a conflict. You've got to be transparent about it. And I've got conflicts of interest. Our, uh, I've got a board member who's our lawyer. I've got another board member who does our food service. I've got another board member who is our contractor. That's okay. But business is business and service is service. And we separate those out and we have an agreement on how it's going to be handled before we go in. Uh, do you have support structures about around it? You know, one of the dangerous things for board, and I know some of you have this problem because you got small boards, but one of the dangerous things for boards is to have only one lawyer because once they speak, nobody else can question it. You need two lawyers on a board, uh, two bankers. If you're going to have a banker, um, use uh, use some of the, the evaluation. Uh, you know, we've got the Evangelical Council for Financial uh, Accountability, those kind of standards. Um, uh, those kinds of things are helpful. And then when you do have a conflict, uh, go into a conflict of interest, just do it on purpose. It's okay. It's no problem as long as everybody's aware of what you're doing and why why you're doing it. So they're tempting, but they really can cause problems. Number six, lean on the bookends of evaluation and accountability. There are good ways to do evaluation and there are some really bad ways to do evaluation. I've tried them all. And finally, after many years of trial and error and learning from leaders, I've found a model that for me works for evaluation, for my own personal evaluation. <clears throat> we can talk about that maybe next week or Q&A today if you want to. Uh, but but um, we have to be dependent on evaluation and accountability. We all need it. More accountability is always better than less. Uh, every leader who gets in trouble gets in trouble because of less accountability. There's not one. And you've had them in Australia. We've got scores of them in the U.S., they always get in trouble because less accountability. How do you create accountability structures? How do you create evaluation structures that are meaningful, but also are not uh, adversarial? And that's what we're looking for in this. <clears throat> and number seven, we want to communicate with our heart, not just our head. And boy, there's a whole bunch we could talk about here. But, but uh, so often as leaders, we have all the facts, we have all the concepts, we have all the arguments, but we're not communicating enough with our heart so that people see the spirit and the calling behind it and, and God's wisdom in what we're doing. They're just seeing the hard reality of it. We've got to do that. We've got to communicate in different ways that are transparent. We've got to communicate in ways that are respectful. And there's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of tools for doing that. <clears throat> We've got to communicate proactively. It's impossible to over-communicate. You know, sometimes the leader, I get so tired of telling the same story over and over and over again. But you've got to, because just because I said it once doesn't mean people hear it. And you've got to be proactive in it. And you've got to communicate simply. Simply, simply, simply. We I think one of the greatest, most important skills of a strong leader is the ability to take big, complex ideas and communicate them simply. And again, back to the powerboat and sailboat, that's why I developed this <clears throat> sailboat model that God gave me. Long story about how that happened. It's kind of fun and interesting. <clears throat> but God gave that image because it took a complex idea, an extremely complex idea, and communicates it simply. And then last, it deflates your ego to expand your influence. 
Ego is an occupational hazard of leadership. And uh, leaders, we don't need any more ego turned on us. We don't need any more attention put on us. We need to help the lift up the people we work with. Our job is to facilitate the work God's given them. And great leaders are characterized by those who have let go of their ego and, have, and are rooted in character and the other attributes that really bring strength into into leadership. So <clears throat> let me stop there. Wes, I told you we'd hit it at, at uh, one hour, and I think we are right on the money there. So let me stop there, and we'll turn it to uh, <clears throat> Q&A or however you want to go next for this next segment. <laughs> Thank you so much, uh, Roger. I don't know whether you need to take a glass of water. <laughs> do that I've been grabbing a few. Yeah, so no, that's good. Well, we've got quite a few questions coming in uh, here already. Uh, so if if others have got questions, please feel free to go to Q&A and then we'll go from there. Uh, it's uh, great to have you on, Shane, by the way. Uh, so Shane Body has got quite a few questions, Ed, which is great because Shane runs a training organization and he grapples with this stuff. And how does this work? How do we put it into practice? So I love his questions. So let's start with the first one. Is there a hybrid of power and sailing, or is it only one or the other, the power boat and the sailing? Is there a hybrid to it? You know, that's a really good question, uh, Shane. And, and I uh, I grappled a long time with that one because, uh, and I, in fact, I use the illustration in the book that I tried to buy what's called a McGregor sailboat. It's the only boat built as both a powerboat and a sailboat. And I did a lot of research on it. In fact, I went to the McGregor factory to look at this boat. And it has a sail. You can sail it like a sailboat, but it has the power like a regular powerboat. And what I found out was it wasn't any good at either one of them. It really wasn't. And so I don't, I don't think there is a, a hybrid between the two, but I think there's a process of one beginning to overtake the other. And uh, I've got a local Christian school here that has really bought into this idea of, uh, of letting go of planning and trusting God for opportunities. But the, uh, the head of school, her board just won't get there and her board wants a plan. So she, she asked me several years ago, she said, how do I handle this? And I said, why don't you just keep a list of the opportunities that came about and the results of those and report those with your plan every year because they want results on the plan. And she told me the other day, after five years, the opportunities are so much more exciting, so much more significant and meaningful and, and impactful than the plan outcomes that they're seeing the difference, but they still want the plan. And, and I get it, you know, the board members come out of a context where this is their sugar stick. They're used to planning. They're used to this structure of a, of a strategic plan. So they want that because that's one way in which boards lead. And so I think you can do a little bit of both and, but when it comes to your heart and your passion, and most importantly, your theology, I think you got to be all in the sailboat in order to let go of the powerboat image where we're directing that future. And, and so you can, you can organizationally kind of be in both camps, but personally, you've got to grasp that in order to make this begin to be, have the impact God wants it to have. 
Hey, thanks Roger for that. So the next question, is there a difference between a plan and strategy and the tactics towards a goal? Yeah, there, there's so many words to use in all this. And that's why I use destination planning versus operational planning. So you can, you can use strategy, you can use uh, goals and, and lots of different terms in that process, uh, you know, depending on your culture. And every organization has a different background of each of those words. But what I'm looking at is we don't want to project those future destinations. I don't know what our enrollment will be five years from now. I don't know what new programs we will have from you. I don't know which new programs we might cut in the next five years. I don't know where those destinations are, but I do know I'm going to have a strategic plan, an operational plan, a, a set of uh, specific goals and objectives for getting the most out of what God's already given us. So if God's given us a, a great uh, doctor of business administration program, we've got that in a doctor of education program. We're going to get the most out of those education programs that we possibly can. We're going to plan those. We're going to have goals. We're going to have objectives. We're going to have, how are you going to strengthen that? How are we going to use those resources? We're going to do all that, but we're not going to say that program's going to plant, grow to double size in five years. And so let's create a plan for how we get to that. We're instead going to make the best stewards of what God's given to us. So think of it more as a stewardship issue. I'm going to be a great steward of what God's going to give me, but I'm not going to ask God for the increase. That's his choice of what to bring to me. Okay, next one. As Jesus knew and followed God's plan for salvation for the world, is that different? Um, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't think... I'd be the right one to answer that, uh, you know, from the leadership perspective, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I think Jesus knew exactly what he came to do, but he had the heart and mind of God and he was God. So he operated in a different sphere than where we operate. Operationally, how many times did we see Jesus right, right, right story about Jesus where it said he was headed one place and somebody came and grabbed him and he went a different place. So we see that with Jesus where his daily plan got changed, his destinations got plan changed, but his true calling of why he came <clears throat> to be the savior of the world, that never wavered. And uh, so, but I think it's in a totally different category of anything we can relate to. His, uh, sitting with Jesus, sitting with the Father every day, you know, the thing he says, he only did what he saw the Father doing, that constant relationship with God, which is kind of the overall thing that you're talking about, Roger, anyway, isn't it? That um, that you don't want to miss what God is saying and, and the direction he's taking you. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I, as I said at the beginning, quickly, I said, you know, this has really changed my prayer life um, because you just have to be in communication all the time and and uh, i'm doing a 10-part series on prayer for our chapel right now and one of the one of the questions we're looking at one of the chapels is why did jesus pray if he was god why did he pray but jesus put priority in prayer more than anybody in the world ever has so that constant communication and that constant trust and when that anxiety comes to just immediately turn over into the hands of god <clears throat> i mean this really does come to me 
to a theology of trust in order to make this work to let go of planning. See, Roger, we I asked you read this question yesterday. Like it's one thing for you as the president to seek God, um, but how do you bring your board along with that? Are they seeking God and and looking for those opportunities as well? Like how does that work as a team? Yeah, they are. It, 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 you know, obviously they don't live this campus every day, and so it's a little different for them. But the way that we focus on it is by always looking back. We are always celebrating what God has done. And uh, if we can learn to look back more often, I think as leaders so often we think our responsibility is to be looking ahead. And, and yeah, there is a responsibility there. But if, if you're like me, when you look ahead right now, what's, what's on the horizon, you know, you just kind of get overwhelmed by it. You say, yikes, how are we going to do this thing? And uh, so what I want to do is from the same point of perspective of looking ahead, I want to turn around and look back and see what God's done and see how he's brought us and see where he's brought us through obstacles. And what I found is those obstacles of the past look an awful lot like the obstacles of the, of the future. We just haven't seen the trail for the one for the future, but we can see the trail of the one of the past. So we're always doing things with the board to remind how God has brought us. Uh, we're doing things with the board to remind about the calling and our dependency on the sovereignty of God for this institution. We're reminding that this is God's institution. It's not ours. We don't own it. <clears throat> if he wants it to thrive, great. If he doesn't want it to thrive and it's already served its purpose, then that's his choice to make. But how do we adjust? How do we change to the culture and where God has put us as a place to serve? And, and so helping the board <clears throat> capture that in small doses, you know, you, you can't kind of do this in a in a retreat thing and you're kind of done with it. It's kind of an ongoing thing to help board members to grasp this. And I'm sure it is for you as it is for us. Your board members are also some of your most important donors. So every board meeting is a donor development meeting. And you need to plan board meetings accordingly <clears throat> because you know that's part of the challenge we have in our unique roles. So we, we are, <clears throat> we're supposed to give vision and we're supposed to inspire a board who is accountable, who, whose responsibility is to hold us accountable. And, and, you know, and you get this weird kind of combination going on of responsibilities. And then there are best donors. But if they see where all the dirty laundry is stashed, then they don't want to give. And so I think a lot of leaders, because of that, tend to make everything look a whole lot better than it is. And so we tend to gloss over some of those difficulties and challenges. And I think that's where leaders get in trouble because they hide that dirty laundry until it really becomes a problem and they pull it out and the board goes, wow, we didn't know this was going on. Uh, you know, I want to keep my board realistic about what it is to run a university in America in this day and age, a Christian university. Uh, how do you really do that? What's the, what's the hard um, core issues of that. And, and it's not a simple task. I want them to help own the difficulty of it and also the joy of the breakthroughs that God does bring us. So, you know, I, I think everybody works with their board differently. Everybody's got their own style. 
and their personality. But I think if you're not transparent with a board, if first of all, they won't get the vision, <laughs> they'll expect you to continue to pull rabbits out of a hat one after another, and they'll be happy until you reach into the hat and there are no rabbits. And all of a sudden you're pulling out empties and then they're going to get frustrated. You're probably going to get run off or you'll decide you're going to go. And we start this carousel of Christian leadership. Instead, when you can stay and you trust in a board and you can have a transparency with the board. And, and sometimes that comes down, you know, a little wandering here, uh, Wes, sorry about this, but sometimes it comes down to the structure of boards, sizes of boards, uh, boards that are too big, it's hard to be transparent with, boards that are too little, get too much control. <clears throat> you know, how do you find that right combination that works for you? And there's no perfect combination. It's never, you know, oh, we finally got the board issue fixed. That's never going to happen. It's it's an ongoing uh, process. But but to me, I'm always driving board back to mission. We, we do a segment in our board meeting at the start of every meeting, we call it God at work on the campus. And we it's not to decide anything. It is not to, to get informed about anything. It's just to hear what God is doing in some aspect of the campus. So that might be a group of students we interview. It could be faculty. It could be a, a new initiative that surprises us what happened. But we want them to be connected back to mission, mission all the time. The board's responsibility is mission. That's where they need to focus, not just approving finances and and policies and all that stuff. Which kind of, I'm jumping around some questions here because I keep coming through. Um, <laughs> Andrew asked the question, uh, there's a risk that embracing opportunities could lead to organizational drift. So this sounds like what you're doing in the boarding is moving away from the original vision and mission. How do you ensure that that doesn't happen? So that sounds like that time in the board meeting is how you make sure that that doesn't happen. Yeah, I, I don't think, Andrew, you, you change, the mission doesn't change unless you do it on purpose. Uh, <clears throat> you know, mission changes in slow little increments. Uh, you know, Harvard University was set up, was founded to be a, a college to train pastors. They didn't become what they are today of a bastion of liberalism overnight. That was done through thousands of little tiny decisions over and over and over. That's how mission drifts is through small decisions, not through big decisions. I think where we get hung up sometimes as leaders and as boards is that <clears throat> our landscape changes and we can't implement the mission in the same way that we did before. And so we feel like somehow we're giving up our mission in order to respond to the culture or the, the, the community uh, needs around us. And, and Wes, you and I were talking yesterday about this, about some of the regulations that are coming against Christian schools in Australia. And you're having to work with that. Well, you're still committed to training students and using Christian education as discipleship. You're still committed to evangelism and to speaking into students' lives. You're still committed to modeling Christian uh, living and, and Christian ideals and to letting that live down. You just have to do it differently because you're being put into these regulations that won't let you do some of the things that you could do before. So it's not that the mission changed, 
The problem is that boards or leaders get stuck and say, well, we have to do it that way. If we can't do it that way, we can't fulfill our mission. Well, why did God put you in Australia when these things are such a challenge if he didn't want you to do it? He put you there on purpose so that you could fulfill the mission that hopefully is going to help the rest of us and the rest of the world that are going to catch up to where you are with some of those challenges. That's a great opportunity you have to respond to that culture in a godly way. And yes, it will look different in implementation. It may feel different, but, but the mission hasn't changed. I'll give you a little bit more specific example. I uh, developed a program in China, and uh, we, we now have a partnership with Xinhua University, which is the number one rated uh, university in China. And we are a Christian college. I mean, there's no hiding it. We're Christian through and through in everything that we do. You come onto their website and it says right there in big standard, big bold letters, our standard is Christ. Everything we have has that on that. But we're accepted in that culture of China. But we also know to work in that environment, we cannot do in curriculum what we do with our American students. We can't do in our interactions with them what we do with some of our other international students. We have to respond to the laws of China and be respectful of those in order to work there. Our mission hasn't changed. Our mission is still evangelism and discipleship. But our role in that has changed in that we are on the, the front edge where we're used to being more on the kind of the drill down moment of that. And when I explained to our faculty that we were going into China and what we we're going to do and what our mission was, then we can't do discipleship like we normally did. And I use the illustration, you know, some will, will, uh, will uh, sow and some will, will reap. And uh, one of my faculty members who's married to a Chinese woman raised his hand and he said, yeah, but somebody's got to clear the field before somebody can sow. And maybe that's our job to just clear the field. And so our mission hasn't changed, but how we implement does change as these pressures come around us and don't feel like you got to throw out the mission just because you can't implement it like you used to. You got to find new ways. And if God has put you there, he's put you there for a reason. And God can handle the regulations of Australia or the U.S. or wherever it might be. We can still work within that. And we can still be a beacon for Christ within that. It might look different. and But you got to help a board to understand that and grasp that. Or they're going to get really frustrated. Because most of our boards, they breeze in for a meeting. They look at the materials a little bit ahead. They don't think about it all the time. They're not living with it every day like we are, and we've got to help them. And that's where it comes back to communicating complex ideas simply. You've got to help them see those big ideas. And that takes a lot of effort, doesn't it? Like putting the time and effort into doing that to, to simplify an idea, to, to put it across succinctly really helps them to grab hold of it, um, which is really good. Okay, I... I I absolutely love your stuff about policies and I shared a story about that yesterday with you. <laughs> but uh, Shane asked the question, can a limited set of policies or maybe more importantly, a set of guidelines help to guide staff and preempt potential issues for future staff? Oh, for sure. You need policies. I'm not saying don't have policies. Just make them on purpose. Have a reason for why you're having them. It's better to have a few policies that you really mean 
and are serious about than a whole bunch of policies. But I just see so many Christian organizations who are afraid to have the confrontation with a difficult employee or situation and instead create a policy to try to solve that problem. And I, and I think there's several reasons for that. I think when, you know, the scripture says don't judge. So we don't want to judge other people. So we want to, you know, we, we want to kind of minimize that. We, we don't like personal confrontations. We just we just hate them as Christians. We we try to avoid them. But you know, I often joke the policies are for cowards. Um, and if you're afraid of those confrontations, you make a policy because you're afraid. Um, and, and policies become hidden structures. And uh, and that's part of the challenge of policy. They start as policies, but eventually they become structures. And those structures get there to make things complex and difficult. And um, so, you know, I just, yeah, you need some policies, but don't make any more than you have to and keep them on the big issues, build them for the good people and deal with outliers when they get out of line. Because, <clears throat> pardon me, this is the balance we have is that like, when you're in education regulatory environment, but also from an insurance perspective, like if you get sued, the first thing they're gonna ask for is what were your policies? What's your operational manual? you know, in doing that. So they're key to have, but I do like what you're saying is because I've seen so many times that a policy is written to control one particular staff member rather than having that difficult conversation. And we need to learn to have those difficult conversations. You do. And you need all those policies for employment law. That's a whole different thing. Those yes. are more about employment law than they are operational policies. I'm talking about the operational policies. I mean, I, I, uh, I know of a Christian ministry who said, everybody will be in their chair by 8.03 in the morning and no one will leave until, you know, 4.59 at night. So what pe people got in and then they sat there for 30 minutes while they woke up and then they all packed up 30 minutes before it's time to go. And the, the effort to control a few people because they were showing up late limited the effectiveness of everybody because the policy became more important than what they were trying to accomplish. That's the part I'm against. And really some of that stuff is one-on-one. -on -one. You know, there's reasons why some people happen to be late. So, I mean, Absolutely. these days with flexible workplace arrangements is a key thing. Yep. Absolutely. I, Jackie asked a great question. She says, Roger, great session. Thank you. How do you discern between a good idea and the best God idea? Do you have a process for that? Yeah, I, I I do, Jackie, and and it really comes down to uh, um, uh, something that again we can go in maybe a little bit more detail next time around. Let me see if it's on this slide. Uh, no, it's on the next slide. <clears throat> First of all, we're gonna we're gonna move on an idea to to get it going when an idea comes, but we're gonna get understand that we're going to flex for implementation. So the idea you start with is not the idea you're going to finish with. And that's part of the problem with this whole planning model. The planning model says we have to anticipate everything that possibly could go wrong. We've got to lay that all out ahead of time. And then anything that could go wrong as a leader, I saw that coming. So don't worry, we got this. I saw that coming. We're all good. And that we think that gives everybody confidence. That's not how good ideas work out. You get started on an idea, on an idea, you get into it, you flex with it, you change with it, you adapt with it. I tell my team all the time, what we start with is not going to be what we finish with. Don't expect it to look like that. 
because you're going to be disappointed if it does. And so I want to get an idea and every idea is never perfect at the beginning. But again, that's part of the problem of planning. We think we've got to detail that all out. We've got to, we've got to anticipate every problem that could come and lay the, all those objections out. And then we can finally start. And by doing that, first of all, we miss the moment of opportunity. And secondly, even with all that planning, it doesn't come out that way. Instead, change the culture so people are comfortable to get started knowing it's going to be different, knowing we're going to adjust, and, and knowing we're going to flex as it comes along. And I have found that's how we get the best ideas to percolate up. Because some of these things, you don't know until you get it lived out. You really don't know uh, until you start to live with it and, and work with it. And, you know, it's like any new car you buy. You, you think it's going to be great, and then you get in and problems go wrong. Uh, everything's got difficulty with it. So how how you gonna make those changes as you go? That's a culture issue. That's not a planning issue. And that's what I think can make a big difference. That's really good, Roger. I, I think one of the things is that, and maybe you find this because I certainly find this when God starts to uh, speak to us about something, we interpret it our way too. So it's working through it and working, okay, God, what are you really saying here? What does this look like? And as you start to unpack it. Uh, so when you say the idea you started with is not generally the idea you finish up with, uh, I resonate with that so much. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think, Wes, there's also a tendency among Christian leaders to think, well, God has to speak more directly to me than he does to other people or I'm not the leader. And so I've got to have that better idea. I've got to have that better perspective, or I'm really not the leader. And, uh, you know, first of all, there's a, there's a lot of trouble that comes when, when you start taking that approach. But that's obviously not how it works. Our job as leader is to facilitate them. We are there to help them. I mean, I don't, I don't teach anybody chemistry at my place, but <clears throat> I get people who are great at it. My job is to help them to do what they do. I don't coach soccer, but I got people who are great at it, help them do what they do. So we've got to understand our role. And it's not to be this great fount that God's going to speak to us. We're going to have the final solution. We're going to be like Moses and come down with the tablets and say, here it is. Let's go. You know, <clears throat> let it bubble up from the people. And once you empower them to be come with ideas and insights and opportunities, it's amazing how many things they will bubble up in the process, but they have to be given permission to do that because they're so used to leaders being the ones who dictate these things rather than empowering the people around them. That kind of comes back to what you're talking about your accountability before too. Um, you know, that we, um, <laughs> I'm going to say something a bit controversial, like, like uh, David's thing with Saul, touch not God's anointed. You know, sometimes it's, I think uh, people think, you know, well, the leader said this, this is it. Um, yeah. We can't question him or her, you know, come back to. And if you've got a controlling leader, uh, it can, yes, but then that doesn't end well uh, in doing that. So working it never ends well. And the people who do that are usually the people who don't have any accountability around them. And so they create this, this environment where they somehow have this biblical insight, this spiritual insight, the rest of us can't begin to understand. So we can't question it because they're the leader. And that's how to part of how they bring leadership and value added to the equation. But it's a 
dangerous, dangerous uh, position to take. Yeah. Final question, because we need to finish up uh, from Terence. Do you believe an ordinary person with a long-term plan in college can be so moved to become a messiah, I don't know whether that's the right word, through short-term leadership in an extraordinary opportunity? Um, I'm not seeing that question on here. Can you kind of summarize it again? So um, I know, Terence, you want to maybe add some extra stuff to that. I think it's like people come to college and you must see this all the time with your students. I certainly see it with mine. They have a specific idea in mind. This is where I'm going long-term. Oh, okay. And then, then God kind of gets them and says, actually, you know what? I need you to change. I have other plans and purposes for you. Like, is it sometimes God gives you some stuff just to get you moving and get absolutely. you in a position to receive absolutely. what he has for you? Yeah, absolutely. And with college students, we do both and. So we start them in week one about understanding their strengths and their motivation and developing a career plan. But we also tell them at the same time, God's probably going to change this. So don't be surprised. And what God's got in mind for you is far better than the best you can imagine. But until God changes that direction, you stay with your plan. You you execute. You go ahead. And, and that's also a, a Christian maturity dealing with college students where they, they've got to have some times and some bumps in the roads in order to embrace that. But uh, And then we try to give them examples of people who started out one way and wound up another way. And so I, I really enjoy that with college students because some of them are so clear in their plan of where they're going to go and what they're going to do. And that's okay. We don't ever discourage that. Follow your plan until God gives you something different. The key is our culture. Our key is our, per, our, our individual outlook that wants to be finding God's best. Why would I want the best plan I can develop if God has a better plan? That's a question we got to help them to ask. And we got to ask ourselves. Excellent. That's really good. Well, that's a great note to finish on. So thank you so much, Roger. What a fire hose session that we've had today. So I want to encourage you guys, if you haven't as yet got a copy of Roger's book, Opportunity Leadership, stop planning and start getting results. It is a very easy read. It's not an academic paper. So like for, a, I said to Roger yesterday, for a president of university, you've written a very non-academic book, but a very practical book that you can purpose. <laughs> yes, and, and implement that as well. So what we're going to encourage you to do is over the next month or so to read the book uh, and then come back. And then on the 22nd of February, we're going to have another kind of more of a Q&A session because I think so often we we hear something, we maybe go away, but forget about it. But or we go away and we read the book, and then we haven't got an opportunity to come back and say, actually, how do I implement this uh, in uh, in our business? So that's why I've asked Roger to do two of these uh, in doing that. So we're going to see how this works. We may do this with others as well. But thank you so much, Roger. Is there anything that you want to say in? Up what, a, what a treat for me. I'm just honored. And again, as, as I can be of help, and if, if you want to send some of those questions ahead of time, we can take them at the time when they come. But I want to, I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm pretty practical in how we lead. And one thing we didn't really talk about is if you're going to take planning out of your leadership portfolio, what are you going to put in its place? Let's talk about that next time. Because as a leader, you get fearful. What's my value added? What am I going to bring into the equation that shows that I'm bringing value. And we can maybe start with that question next time. That sounds excellent. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for all those who have attended. 
you'll be getting a copy of uh, this to rewatch again. And we're also going to be making it available to others as well. Well, thank you, Roger. We'll see you in about a month's time. Look forward to it. See you then. Okay. Thank you, guys. Excellent. It's...